Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Pep, man, great to be with you. Can you believe it? The beginning Season of three, right? Third season. Right on, man. Yeah. You get another chance to get it right. They say the third time's a charm. I keep trying. I keep trying. (laughs) You have been so patient with me. I'm so so grateful. I tell Phyllis every day that we record, like, man, Pep, he's just, he gives me one Uh more try, one more chance. Well, my patience is running thin, my friend, so you better better start pulling your weight. (laughs) Okay. So I would ask you what you've been up to. You know, uh, I'll tell you what I haven't been up to. I haven't been up to releasing my third book into the world. (laughs) That's uh, something that I haven't been doing. I think some people may have been doing this. Uh, So Mm. by the time you're hearing this, uh, Kurt's third book, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community, is out there and available and hopefully in your hands and Mm. hopefully you've digested some of it. And as we're recording it, Kurt is feeling the anticipation of this release because we're recording a little bit before the actual release. But we're excited this third season to be spending some time looking in into the soul of desire. Um, So very, very excited about this. And uh, if you If you don't have the book, I recommend that you purchase it as soon as possible. Um, I would it it would be a real added bonus for everybody, for all of us Mm -hmm. as a community, to be going through the book as we are going through this season, because it's it's all going to be interwoven and hopefully just a beautiful experience for everybody. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I for all of you who are with us today, I'm. I'm thrilled that uh, we're going to have a chance to explore this together. I've never had the chance in the previous with the previous two books. I didn't have the chance to have an ongoing conversation uh, with anyone, let alone with you, Pep, uh, about what the book is about, and to really again get feedback from people, kind of in real time, as as the book makes its way uh, out into the world. And we're hopeful that uh, when you all get copies and read it and buy more copies and send them to all your friends, that you will find it to be helpful and that you will be discovering the very thing that we're that we're really trying to talk about with it, this notion that we really are people of desire and that that desire ultimately leads to our being known and then creating a world of beauty and goodness that is really God's vision that is planted in the very center of our souls. And I'm just really looking forward to this season and having the chance to talk with you about it. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, the nickname that Nathan, your son, has given you will catch on. Um, we, can, we, can all, we, can all start, we can all start calling you Dr. Desire. I think it's... Uh, Apropos, you did. Um, you said that. You actually said that. I uh, did. Like, no going Nathan back now, be, baby. Nathan will be so pleased, and I'm like mortified. <laughs> so let's talk about why desire. Um, you know, hmm. I, I think so. You had um, the the anatomy of the soul and hmm. the soul of shame. 
Mm-hmm. And on your third book, you decided to focus on desire. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, you spend a lot of time writing that book, a lot of your, your intellectual energy. Um, so why did you choose this subject? I think, you know, one thing that I would say that was not intentional, I, I think the, the Holy Spirit does this in the world, does this with each of us, this notion of not just forming us, but forming us together with others and bringing various parts of our lives together in time. And, you know, there's, there's a lot about our life that we don't know in advance. Uh, I don't know when I'm three what life is going to be like as a six-year-old heading off to school. I don't know when I'm 18 what life is going to be like heading into college. I can imagine things, but I don't know. There are a lot of things that God weaves into our life and only brings them into view as we are able and ready to have them be brought into view. And of course, I don't always particularly like this tactic that God uses. I would rather know everything that there is to know so that I could plan for all my future and so that I could correct him with anything that I see (laughs) out there in the future that he has planned for me that I think that is not really a good idea. One of the ways in which I would say, looking in hindsight, I've discovered some things about these three books, is that in some respects, I wouldn't have predicted that the soul of shame necessarily would have come after the anatomy of the soul, or necessarily Mm -hmm. that the soul of desire would have followed the soul of shame. But I think they do, as it turns out, end up being a bit of a trilogy, if you will, a three-part series. Mm. And... I was aware as anatomy, as I was wrapping that up, the work of anatomy of the soul, I was aware that shame was really kind of coming into focus even then as this primary weapon that evil uses, that evil wields to undo this integration process that we are really watching God create in the world with us and especially with new creation with the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And I think that as over the last several years, as I've been watching how people have been responding and listening to and working with how people's responded to the soul of shame, I've discovered, I I think I started to pay attention in my own life. Like, you know, I, I, I was not easily coming up with another idea. I had a two book deal with InterVarsity Press. I didn't have a second idea about a book right away. And I found myself just being aware of a sense of urgency within me. Hmm. And I think that along with some personal things that were happening to me at the time, probably, you know, four to five to six years ago, as I was having to think about this next project, I found myself becoming aware of the depth and strength of my longing for God to give me answers, my longing for God to, you know, heal me, my longing for God to do the next beautiful thing, this longing. And so I think kind of like the lens of a camera that is slowly turning and you can see things slowly coming into sharper and sharper focus, this sense of longing that we are people, my goodness, like we we want to be healed of our shame. We, we want to do this work of integration, but it's really tough for us to do this. And then three years ago, I had the opportunity to be with Mako Fujimura in his studio in Pasadena at Fuller Theological Seminary, where we spent a week 
with him painting and describing what it meant to engage in this process of Nihonga, N-I-H-O-N-G-A, this Japanese art form. And he'd invited, you know, a number of us to come and reflect on this process from our own particular perspectives. And for me, from this perspective of interpersonal neurobiology and spiritual formation. And in that week, I there was, again, it was one of those moments where I, in hindsight, I would say, oh my goodness, like this is the Holy Spirit, like uh, revealing some things or, or bringing into view even more sharply this notion that, oh my gosh, I'm not just longing to have my pain resolved. I'm not just longing to not be ashamed. I look at this painting that Mako's doing and I'm like, I'm longing for this. Hmm. I'm, it's, it's as if my mind were now more awakened to this notion of beauty, this notion that what I'm really longing for that is coursing through all of us, that I, I'm, I'm longing to be partnering with God to create as God has created. Hmm. And so when we look at our shame, when we look at our trauma, which is just everywhere now, right? It's not just our personal traumas, right? It's writ large on our social landscape, politically, racially, economically, you name it. The way we treat the earth, climate, the whole nine yards, trauma is everywhere and shame is embedded in it as a primary way of disintegrating who we are. This notion of longing for beauty I would say is began to strike me as like, oh my gosh, like with all of our intelligence, with all of our science, you know, you'd think that with all of our capacity to know the truth, quote unquote, the way we humans would like to know that we know that we know, you would think that it wouldn't be that difficult for us to create a world of beauty and goodness. But we have just the opposite in front of us. But when you bring beauty into the room, I want to tell you, it circumvents all of our attempts to somehow find the right way to do things in order to make things right. It reminds us that God is first a God that we encounter in his beauty. And that my desire is ultimately for that. And as we will talk, as we go forward, one of the things that we will see is that beauty isn't just something that is external to me that draws my attention. It is certainly that. Beauty is not just something that I'm called to create. It is that. But beauty is what God is calling us to become. You know, you just take a cross-section of 100 people and you were to ask them, when's the last time that someone sat with you, looked you in the eye and said, oh my gosh, I see you and beauty is all that I can think of. Now, of course, as I've often said, you are the most beautiful man in the world, Pepper. (laughs) Okay, all right. So let me ask you. Have you been waiting? Have you been waiting for when is he going to say it? Oh, when is he going to say it? I have been just. I've been waiting. You know, 
I was hoping that maybe season three, that would be something we could drop, but I guess. I, I mean, guess I just, I, I, I think now is the time to say that this book really is dedicated to the most beautiful man <laughs> in the world. Um, so for the sake of conversation, are we, are we using the words both desire and longing interchangeably? Um, we really are. We, we okay. really are. And, okay. and you know, it, it, people already, you know, when I talk about this, people will say, well, could you, could you define longing and desire? Could you, could you define that? And I would say, again, not unlike shame, it's not so much a thing that you define as much as it is a thing that you identify that you first feel literally in your physicality. We know it. It has emotion that is related to it. It also has a storyline Right? Because I don't just have desire that's this amorphous thing. I have this desire that is directed at particular experiences or objects or people. And I think the reason that we really are focusing on it is because, as, as we will get to eventually even in a more detailed way, everything that God is doing is his use of our desire to pull us into beauty and goodness in the world. Mm-hmm. And he's counting on us being people of desire that he has made us to be. He's counting on our desire first itself to be reformed, reformed, redeemed, and then using that very desire to form beauty and goodness in the world, in our relationships, in our furniture, in our artwork, in our software engineering, in our business dealings, all the things that we are really wanting to be about in the world. And so we move from this early notion in anatomy of the soul, like what does it mean for us to be people of integration? What does it mean to become whole, even as our father in heaven is also whole? How has he made the world to work? To then in the soul of shame, how does evil want to disrupt that whole process? And then in this work, really, what is the vision that God has for us to ultimately become this people, these outposts of beauty and goodness in the world? Great. So you've often said that um, we are born looking for someone who is looking for us. Right. And so we are actually people that are, that are born with longing. Right. Yeah. Right. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think, you know, it, it's not difficult. You know, p- babies are born and they're, immediately they have appetites, Right? They have appetites for warmth, for nourishment, for comfort. And this, these physical appetites are kind of the hard deck on which eventually come these, these other notions. We, we like to say that all children, in order for them to develop secure attachments, in order for them to become healthy human beings, uh, they are people who are looking for the four S's. That's right, the letter S. These four words that... Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson coined in one of their books, this notion that we first need to be seen. Baby comes into the world, we need to see that she or he is there. But not just see them as an object, like I see the tissue box, but I see into their mind. I see what do they need, what do they want. And of course, it's hard work for us as adults because they're not telling us explicitly. We have to work at that. But we practice paying attention for them to be seen in order for us then to let them be soothed. We're in distress. We want to be soothed for a whole range of reasons. That being seen and being soothed then over time leads to our being safe. We as 
newborns, infants, toddlers grow into, when we are in securely attached relationships, we grow into a sense that the place where I live and the people with whom I live have created safety for me, created safety for me, protection from the outside forces of the world. But also another important part is that they're creating safety for me from my own internal drives. For instance, if I'm a two or three-year-old and I want to run into traffic, that's my longing, that's my desire, that's my impulse. I want to go do, somebody has to say no. And so part of safety includes not just protecting me from outside, but protecting me from me, wherein which our neural networks are then going to be pruned. This is our parents saying no to us, and in which our desire is being disciplined and directed so that I don't just go anywhere and everywhere that I want. Seen, soothed, safe, that then leads to the fourth S, which means I'm going to be secure. And here's where I, I, I talk about this differently than Dan Siegel does. In my view, when we talk about security, we're talking about you, because you have created for me a space of being seen, soothed, and safe, I now am able to go out into the world and take risks. I can go out in the world and I can make mistakes. Now, hopefully, I'm making mistakes not too foolishly, but I might make mistakes. And when I do, when there are ruptures, I can have those ruptures repaired because I can always return to a place in which I'm seen, soothed, and safe. But in that space of safety, I am taught to have confidence to take risks. Confidence that I can be okay even in an imperfect world. Confidence that I can fall down, skin my knee, and I can eventually learn that that can be okay. That I can have a breakup with a girlfriend and that can be okay. I can get fired from a job and that can be okay. This is training me to learn that in my world, I am ultimately secure because of Jesus. This longing to live into the four S's is really what tells us what it means to us for us to be known. For this to happen is our this process of being known. And so this longing that we talk about begins when we enter the world, comprises these four S's that really make up what it means for us to be fully known by our parents, by our caregivers, and eventually then also by God. This is where desire is first formed. We come out of the womb with this. Now, there's some other interesting things to pay attention to with this, that I, I have a desire, if I'm, if I'm a newborn, first I desire to like understand that this is my hand, and then I desire the toy in my crib, and then I desire to walk across the room, and before you know it, I desire the brunette in eighth grade English class, right? I'm, there's this longing that, of course, is kind of like salt and pepper with all kinds of other things, but I have this longing. I long then to go to, to, to get a job or to go to college or to the, join the Marines or whatever it is, that I'm, this longing that I'm going to do. But we also recognize, and this is the work from René Girard, the French philosopher, the Catholic French philosopher, who so eloquently wrote about how in many respects, desire is also something that emerges out of what we call mimicry or mimetic desire. And this is important because what Rene Girard rightly points out is that for the most part, when it comes then to the objects that I desire, I desire to be known, but those things that I desire, those objects or those experiences are often things that I do desire 
because I've seen other people have them. In other words, I desire things often not just because of their own merit, but I desire things because somebody else desires them. I desire a particular kind of experience because all these, all my friends are saying that they have this, this is a great experience. I desire to have a certain kind of fountain pen because certain people that I really respect, as it turns out, have had this fountain pen and I want to, like, I see some, this person who has authority in my life, they have this object, they have this experience, I want to have this experience. Now it's true that the experiences or the objects in and of themselves can prove to be important. But like, I just saw you pass your Yeti cup. My Yeti Cheers. cup. Cheers, yeah. The Yeti cup is a beautiful cup. Agreed. But I want to have the Yeti cup because you have it. And in this way, even our mimetic desires are ways in which God is using objects. We have been made to allow objects to be fulcrums wherein which we make connections to other people, right? The, the yetis are mostly about my connecting to you, as it turns out. And so even when it comes to the things that we think that we long for, even and of themselves, the way we are neurobiologically and interpersonally wired means that my longing is really about, it's still about relationship. Wall Street's been taking advantage of that idea for years with its advertising and everything, right? I mean, you know, uh, put somebody in the ad that looks a certain way or represents a certain thing, and they have this, and we desire to have it because they have it. It's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, you know, for all of you that are with us today, you know, you, you, can, you can just, for a moment, you can just imagine... What are the things, what are the objects, what are the experiences, what are the relationships that I desire? And if you're willing to pause and reflect and you walk those back far enough, you find that if you're curious enough, you discover there's something about someone else who has authority in our life who has wanted this thing. And what we really want is to be connected to that person of authority. What we're really wanting is to know that I'm okay. What I'm really wanting, again, we're circling back to being seen, soothed, safe, secure. And so the longing and the desire, ultimately, as we are often told, is something that God has put within us and God is counting on in order to draw us to God. You know, there are lots of wise people who would say that all desire begins and ends with God, that we have been created as people who are to desire God who desires us to desire him. Yeah. I just saw something this morning. Do you know, are you familiar with Scott the Painter? Yes. So uh, he posted a, a picture just this morning and it was a heart with a round hole in the middle. And there was a triangle that said sex. There was a square that said fame. And then the round peg said God, you know, that, that fit in the hole, in the desire. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think it's really, it's really striking because Girard, who, if, if you all don't know of his work, 
Um, I would highly recommend it. There's a, 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 I mean, he's, he's brilliant. And so, um, you can find him on YouTube, some YouTube interviews that are really fun to watch and, you know, take 30 minutes, 50 minutes of your time to, to get an introduction to him. G I R A R Girard, G I R A R D. You know, he wrote a book called, I saw Satan fall like lightning which of course is taken from Jesus' words in response to when his disciples come back to him and say, Master, we have cast out demons. We've done this, we've done that. And Jesus is seeing Satan fall. But in this book, Gerard talks about this notion of how often our desire and our longing is a mimicry of others. But if we're not careful, shame also takes advantage of this. So, you know, it's, it's like I say, look, if desiring God is the ultimate, right, that's the ultimate thing for which desire is about, then I want to know, Pepper, why doesn't God compete more effectively in the world? That's a great question. Right? It's a great question. I want to know, why is it that I, it's easy for me to desire the idealized woman. It's easier for me to desire the economic security. It's easier for me to desire, like, as I've said to you, like, I want to be famous. I want to be famous until, you know, and then you're like, you know, you realize like, it's not really real. Why, why is it that these things that are so easily, tangibly in front of me, why, like, why can't God compete more effectively with this? And of course, this is where I think Gerard's work is so helpful because, you know, not unlike the disciples, not unlike Mary Magdalene in the garden with Jesus at the resurrection, when she notices that it's him, she grabs him. Right? There's this sense in which you left once. I'll be damned if I let you get away again. Like, I'm not going to let go of, I'm going, to, I'm going to hold this thing that others want. I'm going to hold this thing. And he says, I've not yet been to my father. You can't hold me. Because to hold me is an indicator. It is a reflection of the part of you that is still not yet comfortable being fully loved by me. You don't have to have an object to be okay, because the object is always only pointing to the relationship in which you're being loved by me. I want to hold my favorite fountain pen. I don't want to just observe a Mako Fujimura in the in the museum. I want to own it, right? Right, because like and and, and because it's 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 tangible. I can hold it. I want to have the particular relationship. I want to. I mean, and we can all name, what are the things that we want? I want the Tesla, I want the house, I want the second house, I, I, all the things that we want. Why doesn't God more effectively compete? And we're going to talk more about that a little later on in one of our other episodes, this whole notion of how our life has been disintegrated by what happens when instead of desire leading to integration, desire leads to devouring. We believe, if we believe that desire begins and ends with God, 
The hard part is that I'm recognizing that when I want ultimately anything other than him, the thing I want, I'm going to devour. We're reminded of the early texts in both Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, where we read in the curses where God speaks to the woman and says, your husband will be your master and your desire will be for him. And the word desire there is only used typically in the way that it's used there in the same way that it's used one chapter later. And that desire that God speaks to Eve about for her husband is not sexual desire so much as it is about a possibility of undermining, a possibility of devouring, because he will be your master. This curse means that men will treat women in ways that are abusive and women will do what they can to undermine the males that they're with. That same use of desire is echoed in Genesis chapter 4, one chapter later, when Cain is at the crossroads with his brother Abel, when God says to him, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. This is where desire, when shame is infecting it, tends to move in a direction that tends to be disintegrating, where I want to own and clutch and hoard and ultimately consume. And so desire is that which God depends upon, but in our brokenness, desire itself presents itself to be a challenge. And so the redemption of desire is what God is about in Jesus for the purpose of then using it to create beauty and goodness in the world, ultimately. You know, I, um, I, I, I just think about, like, I, I think about one story. I was, uh, I don't recall if I've told this story before. You're aware of it. This story of when I was about 10 years old, playing football in my front yard on a Wednesday evening in the summer when my mom walked out and was going to go to prayer meeting. We could walk to church where we live. We She's going to go to prayer meeting and Grew up in this evangelical Quaker community, and you know, I was the only person under 40 that would ever be at one of these prayer meetings where there would be 15 people and there's Kurt. Like there's all these adults, and they're like, What's like what's the what's the child doing here? Well, the child didn't know. He was just there because like that's what you gotta do. And my mom, you know, walks out the front door, and I noticed that my mom was headed to church, but I'm playing football with my friends, and then she looks at me, she stops, looks at me and says, Are you coming to church with me? You know, looking back on this, I'm thinking like, excuse me? Are you coming to church with me? And I said to her, do I have to? And she said to me, where do you think Jesus would want you to be? (laughs) Now, if I'd been courageous enough, I would have said, I think Jesus wants me right here playing football with my friends. I think he wants you in church where all the adults are, but I think he wants me right here. Now, if I'd been smart, if I'd been smart and foolish, I would have said, I'm not sure. Why don't you go ask your husband, who apparently doesn't see like feel like he has to go to church tonight either? <laughs> but so here's here's just an example, right? Like I I grew up in a home with God fearing parents. I grew up in a home where parents loved me. Anything good about my life has my parents' fingerprints all over it. And at the same time, that was a moment in which I have a desire as a ten year old to be playing football with my friends. That's my longing. But now my longing is getting wrapped around this notion of like going to church and feeling bad if you don't. 
my mom's distress now becomes something that I have to manage. I can't do what I want to do because I'm too busy managing her stuff. And in the same way, I had a father who was deeply affectionate, loving, kind, all the things. But, you know, you just didn't want to cross him because if he were to get angry, like, you didn't want to be around when that happened. Now, he wasn't abusive, but you didn't want to be angry. And so, like, I grew up where in which there are times when I feel anger or anxiety, and, like, it's not okay to name this. Desire gets truncated. Desire to play football, desire to express yourself. You can't do that because you're always like waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so in this sense, I think that it's really important for us to recognize that desire is shaped by all of our developmental experiences. But it's never, ever something that leaves us alone. And as we'll see later, this question of like, what do we want? is a really important question. What is your desire? What are your desires? And most of us all have all kinds of ways of saying, well, I don't know what those things are, or I'm too, I'm, I'm too worried to answer them straightforwardly because like, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm telling you the wrong thing? What if the thing that I want God's not pleased with? or my, Whatever. And because we don't pay attention to them, we end up mischanneling them. And so we would say that in some respects, all sin is misdirected desire. We don't talk about sin without talking about desire, which is why it's so important to talk about it. Right. And the last thing I just want to want to mention, um, you know, uh, just to be to make sure that we cover all of our bases, you know, in our in our culture, and and I think not just ours, but historically, anytime you talk about desire, uh, it's you know people's mind eventually wander to sex. Right. And so, just a word about that. That I just want to say that you know, sex can be many things for many people. But at its fundamental base, it represents our desire to be wanted, to be received, right? The man wants to be received by the woman and our desire to be desired. The woman wants to be, she she desires to be desired. She desires to have someone come into her, to to do this sense of desiring. But what it's really, a representation of is what it what stands behind all that. Because we tend to think that sex is it. It it is like it is like the thing. But you know, with orgasm, when it's over, it's over. And we don't want over. We want deep lasting joy. I want my desire to be something that leads me into ever-deepening, growing beauty. And what's so interesting about sex, even with it, we have a physical limitation. We have an end, right? We have, like, at the end of orgasm, like, we're done. Like, there is a no to the yes of sexuality. We can't just endlessly just do this. Our physicality has its own limitations, Because behind all of it is beauty in relationship that far surpasses the sex itself, but has been so marred by our brokenness that we have a hard time seeing that. And so I want us all to just recognize that we need not be afraid of just naming sex for what it is in the room. Like, yes, desire does have to do with that. And sex is a powerful embodied representation of it. But it is that. It is a representation. It is pointing us to something beyond it. It's pointing to beauty, which is what we're going to try to tackle in our next episode, or at least Mm -hmm. the first forms of it. 
You've been listening to Dr. Desire. On the Being Known podcast. <laughs> That's a great. Okay, so so um, I'm excited to be uh, delving into beauty next week. Um, again, I want to um, encourage everyone, if you haven't already, to uh, go out and get the Soul of Desire, so that this season will have a whole nother layer to it uh, for us together. Um, and uh, this has been a great a great introduction to uh, where we're headed this mm. season. I'm excited about season three, mm. Kurt. Mm. Right on. Great to be with man. you. Great to be with the most beautiful man in the world. <laughs> Love you. Love you. See ya. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.